Chapter Twenty Five of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meol. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. White Clover. On my close-shaven lawn, the white clover spreads fast and drives out the grasses. To grow freely in close turf, a plant must enjoy some special advantages, for it has to hold its own against a particularly severe competition. What is the secret of success with which clover encounters its rivals? In summer drought we see that the clover keeps green, while the close-cut grass turns brown. Nearly all round the year the clover continually pushes out new branches, which root themselves in the soil. Its runners insinuate themselves among the grass, grow strong, expand their leaves, and often end by occupying the site completely, leaving no room for any other plants. But though on the lawn clover generally gains on the grasses, in the paddock the grasses gain on the clover. It is hard to find a single plant of clover where the soil is rich and damp, for there it is completely overshadowed. By the side of a footpath, the clover is always pushing out into the sandy walk, while the tall grasses establish themselves securely under the hedge. The advantage of the white clover is merely local. It prevails over the grasses where the ground is hard and dry, and also where upward growth is checked by the lawnmower, browsing cattle, or the tread of foot. But in the paddock, still more in the meadow or the hedge, the grass hollums, drawing out their jointed stems like prospective glasses, overtop the clover, which is nowhere in the competition. Each plant has advantages of its own. Clover has a trefoil leaf with a long leaf stalk. A grass has long strap-like leaves with no leaf stalks at all. Clover spreads out its leaf like an umbrella, the grass like a pennon. The umbrella-like leaves of clover cover the ground more completely and catch a great part of the possible sunlight. Some adjustment of the leaves is necessary in most plants to keep them out of one another's way. In clover, this is conveniently affected by the long leaf stalk and by an organ of movement at its base. A very slight change of figure at the base, acting upon the long lever of the leaf stalk, causes a visible displacement of the leaf blade. With most grasses, on the other hand, the great object is to gain a moderate height rapidly. They have telescopic columns and long narrow leaves springing at different heights out of one another's way. The base of a clover leaf bears a pair of stipules which form a protective sheath, often enclosing rudiments of a young branch or root, besides the organ of movement of the leaf stalk. The delicate tissues are thus screened from intense light and heat, and in some measure protected from trampling by cattle. Towards the tip of a growing branch, the leaves become crowded, and one sheath often encloses others, thus giving additional protection to the tender growing point. Each of the leaflets of the trefoil leaf bears a whitish patch near the middle of its upper surface. I wish I could tell you what is the use of this patch. All that I know is that the epidermis here becomes separated a little from the tissues beneath, and that the white color is due to reflection of light from an extremely thin layer of air. Buttercup leaves and many others show white patches of the same kind. When the leaf is dipped into hot water, the air is expelled and the white patch disappears. Of what advantage is the trefoil leaf to the clover? Watch the leaves at sundown and you will see that they fold up when there is no more sunlight to be absorbed and when radiation of heat to the cold sky is to be feared. The division of the leaf into distinct leaflets facilitates the operation of folding. Two of the leaflets droop until they become vertical, one edge being turned towards the ground and the other towards the sky, 
Then the third leaflet folds over the other two and forms a ridged roof above them. Instead of broad surfaces, only a single edge, answering to the midrib of the central leaflet, is turned towards the sky, and the radiation of heat is checked in proportion as the radiating surface is diminished. The Darwins, in Movements of Plants, Chapter 6, ascertained by experiment the effect of preventing leaves from going to sleep on a clear cold night. The leaves of a variety of plants were pinned open on sheets of cork, or otherwise forced to remain in the horizontal position. Many were hurt, and some killed, while others, whose movements were not impeded, either escaped or at least suffered much less. Clover and wood sorrel leaves, when pinned open, condensed large drops of dew, a proof that they had become chilled, while those which were unconstrained remained perfectly dry. How were the drooping and erection of the leaflets of clover affected? If we look carefully at the meeting place of the three leaflets, we shall see a kind of cushion, and just beyond it three short cylindrical stalks. Part of each cylindrical stalk is different in texture from the rest. It is glossy, semi-transparent, and transversely wrinkled. Here is the organ of movement for the leaflet. What do we mean by an organ of movement? It can generally be recognized at a glance by its form and its position. At the base of a leaf stalk or some other movable part, we often find an enlargement or cushion. A thin section at this point shows a crowd of minute colorless cells. The bundle of vessels, where it traverses the cushion, becomes particularly flexible, owing to lack of woody thickening in the walls of the vessels. The covering epidermis is often wrinkled, sometimes only on one side. The small, crowded cells of the cushion are capable of absorbing water from the surrounding tissues on either side of the central strand. Then they swell, and the whole stalk leans over to the opposite side. Proof that the organ of movement of the clover leaflets is situated just where they are attached to the leaf stalk is not hard to find. We may destroy or injure other parts, such as the blade of the leaflet or the midrib, without necessarily hindering the power of movement in what is left. If the leaflets are amputated just above the base, the stumps can still open and close. But if we destroy or injure the part which has been described as the organ of movement, the leaflets are unable to move any more. Cut away with a pair of fine scissors the green blades from all the leaflets of an expanded clover leaf, and go with a lantern after dark to see how they are behaving. You will find that, notwithstanding the mutilation, the bare midribs have executed as usual the movement by which they are accustomed to protect the leaf from the cold of night. A clover leaf generally erects itself before the leaflets close. The leaf and leaf stalk are thus gathered beneath the radiating surface, which, as we have seen, is reduced to a minimum. Clover, as a rule, opens by day and closes by night. Artificial darkness may cause it to fold up its leaves, but not always. Now and then we are surprised to find that clover, which we have locked up in a cupboard overnight, has its leaves wide open when we come to look at it the next morning. The plant gets into what we must call a habit of opening at a fixed hour, and goes on doing it even in the dark. The habit is soon lost if the hours of light and dark are changed. See F. Darwin and D. F. M. Pertz in Annals of Biology, Volume 6, page 245, and Volume 17, page 93. On a still, bright summer day, note the earliest hour at which clover leaves begin to close. If it were not so troublesome to watch plants in the early morning, I would ask you to determine also the hour at which they begin to open you would find that the leaflets are hardly ever stationary. When they are fully expanded, they will soon begin to close, and when they are completely closed, they will soon begin to open. 
This is not true of all plants whose leaves take a sleep position. In the next lesson, clover is compared with wood sorrel. End of chapter 25